Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we are actually sitting down with a special guest, a good friend of ours, part of our Project Purple family. Sam, I feel like we are doing like one bite here because we've been on the road. We took a two hour drive to Manville, New Jersey. We're in beautiful Manville, right outside of Princeton with the lovely, talented, inspiring Amanda Sullivan. Thank you, Amanda, for being on our podcast. Thank you for having me. I've never heard all of those words right before my name, oh, stop, so that was just wonderful. Stop, great way stop, to start. Stop. We've been here catching up for some time, but it's great to have you on the podcast. I know we've talked about this for a while, and we kind of made this work, and thank you for taking time, and there's been a lot going on, which we're going to get our listeners up to speed in a minute. Uh, but before we begin, um, we just want to let everyone know we did bring donuts down, <laughs> And Amanda has not had any donuts yet. The donuts are staying. Sam and I have uh, slowly been making our way through the donuts here uh, on the podcast as, we, as we've been recording here and talking. But uh, thank you to Donut Crazy. Give them a shameless plug. Out of Connecticut, they do these crazy, amazing donuts. I think we've got the Black Hawk, which is like four types of chocolate. We've got the Elvis, which is the maple bacon one. We've got a red velvet one, and uh, we've got the traditional Boston cream and also apple, which maybe those will get eaten before we leave today, but uh, thank you to those guys. But uh, for our listeners at home, Amanda, and we have such a vast audience, it's, it's pretty fascinating, and you've been part of this family now. This is going on three years. This will be, yeah, because you ran with the first marathon you ran with us was the New York City Marathon in 2017. So yeah, this is three years because te- well, actually, technically, like yes. if you think about marathon cycles, right? Um, but for our listeners at home that maybe have never heard of you or don't know your story, here's your opportunity to spend as much time to talk a little bit about your background and how you got to Project Purple. Oh, That's man. so broad, I know, <laughs> oh, right? For somebody who is blonde with traumatic brain injuries, and as a natural rambler, you really just opened it up. Well, so then let's <laughs> let's let's talk about this then. I'll okay. I'll 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 help you here. So like in so it all began in 1989. <laughs> in in somewhere in New Jersey. <laughs> no. So for for um for the listeners, why don't we do this? Um, I think it'd be really cool because I know your story and I've gotten to know you pretty well. I think. Um, why don't we share, kind of before your mom. Okay. That because I think and I was following you from afar. I don't know if I ever told you that someone actually, someone out of Connecticut was like, oh, when I started Project Purple, back in 2010, they were like, hey, you should take a look at this girl Amanda who's running these Spartan races and is impaired and using crutches and is just so inspiring and and I think we had done a Spartan at the time. I, I don't know if we ever talked about this. We had a relationship with Spartan for like. A hot second it seemed like it was really? like yeah it was like when they they embraced charity for like almost a year and a half i think that was about the duration of the period that they had really tried to build a charity program and then you know they they clearly went in a different direction i mean i think they do some stuff with charities but for us it was just we were i think more, they're more um wounded veteran charities correct correct which is awesome i mean yeah. there's so many amazing charities and there's so many great charities doing great work and um yeah, we were in their charity program when they were doing the world championships in Killington. Wow. 
So Didn't we, you do that race? We did. We did the charity. So the first year. The charity run. We That's did the, the charity did. run for two years in a row. The first year, it was just the average Joes. And then the second year in Vermont, we brought what we thought was a stacked team. But then unbeknownst to us, <laughs> they allowed some of the professional runners because the pros did the race on Saturday. On Sunday was the charity run and then the general public and stuff. Uh, they allowed those pros that ran on Saturday to run with the charities on Sunday. So lo and behold, we did not do well that second year. Even though I tried to stack the deck with some pretty serious runners, it just didn't work out. But uh, And then that was the end of it. Like We did those two years and then we kind of not necessarily got out of it, but I think we just kind of shifted gears and, you know, we've worked with Tough Mudder and some other OCR races that do like kind of these mud runs and obstacle courses and stuff like that. So with that though, let's talk a little bit about your background and what got you to Spartan because you were big on the Spartan scene and still are, so. Um, okay. Well, I was joking about how it all began in 1989, yeah. but truthfully, I guess in order to talk about who I am now, I need to talk about who I was then. Yeah. So I was an athlete my entire life. Um, I come from a big Irish Catholic family, and sports was just very vital in everything that we did, um, watching sports, playing sports. So I was on a swim and tennis team from the ages of 5 to 17, and my senior year in high school, I was captain of varsity field hockey, basketball, and lacrosse. Um, when I went away to college, I played club sports. And then um, when I graduated college, I started working for a mission in Mexico where it wasn't necessarily the type of mission where I was handing out Bibles. It was um, the mission had different programs that were sponsored by different churches and parishioners in the United States. So my job was running an orphanage for little girls ages 6 to 14. Um, they had all been sexually abused, tortured, um, terrible things that happened to them, and they were all alone. And working down there with them, I also taught them sports, <laughs> working down there with them really lit a fire inside of my soul. And I felt like this is what I want to do. Always when I was growing up, I knew I wanted to do something like the Peace Corps. And I had won scholarships and studied in both Costa Rica and Chile in college. And I just felt like my heart was drawn specifically to Latin America and specifically with orphans. So I began, when I left Mexico, where I also taught Spanish classes to little kids who speak Mayan. Um, actually, I will tell you that I speak Mayan. <laughs> and I actually spoke more Mayan than Spanish when I lived there. And my nickname everyone gave me was Incabaxcaine, which means ray of sunshine. So pretty fitting. <laughs> my mom always told me when I was younger just to follow my heart and everything else will fall into place. So while most of my friends were going to law school and working on Wall Street, I just I felt so comfortable around people who from the outside didn't have much um, material, many material possessions, but they had so much spiritual love and spiritual light. And I just felt, it's interesting looking back because I truly felt my soul was just absorbing all the light. And um, from there, I ended up living in Guatemala, Honduras, Colombia, Peru. Uh, I lived for a year in Jamaica. Um, 
there was more, but I can't While remember. all doing missionary work. All doing right? mission. I, I ended up, I started working actually with, specifically with women who had been sex trafficked. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also very drawn to refugees, but the orphans and refugees, pretty much the causes ended up being the same. Mm-hmm. And people kept telling me in my travels that I would eventually know why I, why I was learning all of these lessons. And people kept telling me all of these women, um, I remember being in a village named Yalpamech in Guatemala, and the women had were the only survivors from their own villages um, from a government massacre years before. And I felt so drawn to their light and their hearts and the way that they were able to forgive the men who had killed their families and raped them and mutilated them. Um, as well as their ability to still see light and hope in the world and still press on was something that I felt unbelievably honored and blessed even to be in their presence. It's interesting when people um, ask me, you know, who my celebrity crush is or who I would do anything to meet. And for me, I, I really don't care that much about somebody who's in a a-list, an A-list celebrity in a movie. For me, I've always just been drawn towards people who are shining in the face of adversity, and I'm drawn towards the struggle, and I'm drawn towards the fight. So these people women, these women the in Yalpamech, kept telling me that eventually I would know why I was drawn towards it, and eventually I would know why I was where I was and why I was learning the lessons that I was learning. And they always told me that I had the light, and I didn't really know what that meant. Um, but I, I just know that my soul felt at peace with them. And I know that despite the surroundings and maybe a lot of times not being in safe situations, um, I had been attacked a few times in my travels. Um, but it was more par for the course because of where I was. And if anything, those times that I was attacked brought me closer to the people I was working with. So I did that for 10 years. And... I came home for a Christmas of 2008. My mom let me leave the country as long as I promised to come home for Christmas and for two weeks over every summer, mm-hmm. usually in August. So I came home for Christmas of 2008. I was about to open a new orphanage right in Mexico City. It was basically a replica of the orphanage that I had run in Yucatan, Mexico. And I was super excited. I felt like everything I'd been through in my life had come full circle and I was using all of the lessons I had learned from all these people in my travels, lessons I'd learned from people growing up, from my parents, from my grandmas. I just felt like I was living my purpose. And we had the children picked out for the orphanage and it was supposed to open March 1st, 2009. So I was going to be home for a couple weeks talking in New York City um, at different corporations and churches just to raise some extra funds for this big project. So (laughs) I ended up deciding one night that I really should go to the gym because I had been eating my mom's delicious food nonstop. (laughs) And I just felt like I really need to burn at least one calorie since I'm consuming 50,000 a day. I knew that something was telling me not to go to the gym and it wasn't just me being really lazy. (laughs) But I decided to go anyways. And you know sometimes when you're 
going somewhere and you think maybe I don't feel social. I really don't want to bump into anyone. So mm-hmm. I waited until a little later and I had a hat on, a Yankees hat. Oh, Yankees. <laughs> that I was wearing pretty low and I headed to the gym. And I remember it being dark out and I was on a two lane, well, it was a four lane road, two lanes of each direction of traffic, if that makes sense. I was riding in the right lane and I saw a car that was pretty far behind me in my lane. Um, I just made note of it. And I arrived at the um, shopping center where the gym was. So I stopped and put on my blinker. I was at a complete stop and there's a woman in an SUV who was pulling out of the parking lot. And her SUV was so big that she was sort of taking up part of the entrance as well as the exit. So I decided to let her go first. And I didn't really know when she was gonna go. So I motioned to her that she could go and she was looking past me. So I looked in my rear mirror and I saw that car again, also still in my lane. But I figured that the driver would switch into the lane next to me to my left because nobody was in that lane. So I felt like I was waiting for what felt like forever. And I looked up at the woman as if to say, hey, are you gonna pull out or not? And I just remember just complete fear and horror on her face. And I remember two little children's faces in the window, um, in the windows of the back of her car. So I looked at my rear view mirror almost right at the point of impact. And I saw a driver who was left hand on the wheel, right hand holding a cell phone right up to his face. And the whole inside console of his car was lit up because it was dark out. And I just remember him looking down, about to hit me. And I apparently cut my wheel to the right and stepped on the gas. I remember cutting my wheel, but I do not remember stepping on the gas. Thank God I did, because as he crushed through and hit the back of my car, the way that my car spun, I did not hit this woman and her children in the car. And even though it wouldn't have been my fault, I don't think I would have ever forgiven myself if something happened, Hmm. specifically to those children. Unfortunately, I learned later that the car that I was in, which was a small BMW, the airbag only deploys if the car is hit from the front. So my car seat (laughs) pushed forward and basically swished me into my steering steering wheel. Apparently, I had locked my arms and braced for impact, which was unfortunately to my detriment because I just kind of tore up my arms, my muscles and ligaments and stuff and severely sprained and strained my back and my neck. Um, I broke my nose and fractured my skull. Um, I also had traumatic brain injuries. But I just remember that I was awake. Apparently, I got knocked out for a little, but I remember opening my eyes, and I remember people being everywhere all around me, and I did not understand why they were around me. Um, All I knew was that when I left for the gym, I really did not want to see anyone, and now all of a sudden, there's people everywhere, and all the lights are on me. Everyone looks, something's going on, but all I knew was that I was, my hat that was sort of hiding me, I didn't know where my hat was. So the witnesses I learned from my lawsuit said that all I was doing, I just kept touching the top of my head and and asking where my hat was, which apparently was in the back of the car. I also remember the driver of the car who got out and he was yelling at me and he was 
again, through my lawsuits, I learned he was saying, F this B. Why is everyone so worried about this B? My car's effing totaled. And when I learned about that, it really upset me more than the fact that I got into an accident just because I, I know that people make mistakes. Yeah. And I also know that things can happen in a blink of an eye. So I didn't know how long he was looking at his phone for. All I know is that he made a mistake. But it was how he reacted that when it I It sounds learned, like he didn't take ownership for it, though, right? Like, I mean... No, not at all. And he was cursing at me and calling me all these names. And all I wanted to know was where my hat was. <laughs> Where's the Yankee hat? Yeah, exactly. But um, it was actually a blessing that... He was so mean to me because of the fact that it was freezing and it was nighttime and over 12 people waited to give their report to the police officer because they were horrified by how he was treating me. Treating you, yeah. So that was a huge blessing and I'm grateful for how he was (laughs) because I don't know if otherwise, it's not necessarily like I needed those witnesses if somebody hits you and you're at a complete stop with your blinker on. However, for me personally, if God forbid I had made contact with that SUV. It would just be nice just to know that there there were all these other people who were saying that they saw it and it wasn't my fault. So I was recovering. I was in bed for almost six weeks and was feeling pretty good. Um, I don't know the extent of a lot of my injuries because my insurance company, um, you know how insurance is, they were sort of denying me a bunch of my testing and Mm -hmm. making me wait and saying, you know, you need to wait. I forget how long for my MRI. And I mean, I didn't really care. All I knew is that I just really wanted to get back and be down in Mexico by the time the orphanage opened. So you're stuck now in the States. I'm stuck in the States. I say stuck, but... I was stuck. And I just needed to do PT. I had no interest in being in a lawsuit. Yeah. Um, I sort of viewed... My view of the United States was from a being abroad so long was sort of like everybody's kind of suing each other and I wanted nothing to do with that I just wanted I didn't want the negative you wanted to move on yeah I just wanted to go down back to Mexico I had no idea yeah and I I honestly I had seen so many terrible things in my travel this was like nothing it's like all right I'm gonna be fine um but when I read that police report and I saw and then I had seen different things that the witnesses were saying, I was a little disgusted. Yeah. And so um, when I spoke with my insurance company and basically said, you know, I actually, I have no interest in a lawsuit or anything like that. I just want to heal. And I'm just, what's really bothering more than anything else is the things that he said to me. It's just so unnecessary. And I think also I had this glorified view of men in the United States because of the different horrible things that I'd seen outside the country. I think maybe for me processing everything that I was seeing on a daily basis, maybe it made me feel better to imagine that somewhere in this little bubble, men treated women amazingly. And and obviously maybe people can't get away with the things that I was seeing on a daily basis. We have a justice system and all these Mm -hmm. other things, but I still thought, oh, no, that would never happen here. You know, these, the men in the United States, they just view women as queens. I just, who knows? But the point is that (laughs) this was a little bit of a wake up call because I'm thinking, what? Why is the guy being so mean to me? But my insurance, so I said, I just want to know that this, this person is sorry. Yeah. 
And he basically sent a message back to me through insurance that said that I can go F myself and he'll see me. Sorry, not sorry. Yeah. Yes. So or not even sorry. Like, not even sorry. Go fly a kite. Almost. <laughs> go fly a kite. So I was really excited after six weeks of bed rest, which honestly, I don't even remember. I felt very excited just to be in a comfortable bed with a comforter. And um, my mom had just adopted a little puppy who was so tiny and he was staying in the bed with me. And I honestly felt like I was in some type of soap opera after being in cardboard shacks and stuff. And it was nice spending a little bit of extra time with my mom. But I was finally cleared for physical therapy and I thought, yes, I'm gonna do physical therapy. Um, Maybe have surgery, maybe not, who knows, but then I can go back to what I love. And I was heading into my first session of physical therapy. Um, my mom dropped me off. I was walking through a parking lot and it was at 3 p.m. It was probably a little bit earlier than 3 p.m. because I think my appointment was at 3 p.m. But I remember dressing like <laughs> I was going to train for a marathon, which is kind of funny because realistically I was just going to do slow stretches with my yeah. arms. But I remember. <laughs> hey, you're going to you're going to get work done. Though. You got to <laughs> yeah. dress the part. I was. Yeah, I was dressed like I was rocky heading into yeah. Moscow to train. Um, but it was an unusually warm day. And, you know, being in the Northeast, if there's a warm weather. Oh, yeah. We people, take advantage of it. Oh, my goodness. It's. Everybody is just so happy and smiley, yeah. and it's almost like it's summertime. People are trying to get a little bit of tan outside, yeah. especially trying playing to get a tan. Hooky. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Kids are playing hooky from school if they're not out of school. Exactly. People are playing hooky from work. <laughs> exactly. Golf courses are packed. Yeah, we got to take advantage of those good days. Exactly. So I had walked through the parking lot, and I was now on a walkway, rounding up to go into the building. Um, it was a medical building. And I remember seeing some little ladies that were coming out with their mobility aids. And I remember looking up and thinking, oh my goodness, these ladies are adorable. So I was actually walking a little slower because they were taking up the whole space. Um, there was a woman who I later learned, her name is Tamika, who was one of my angels that day. She was driving a senior citizen van, and I'm assuming she was picking up those women, or if not somebody else. But she had her window down, and I remember seeing the sunlight shining through her window, and the way that it hit her black skin, she just looked like this golden queen. I thought, wow, her skin is beautiful. And I smiled to her, and she smiled back, and I was was walking, by the way, no mobility aid. I'm pretty sure I had (laughs) braces all over me, definitely had a neck brace, something over my nose, but I felt good. And um, that was the last time I walked. Um, I never really thought of that actually until now. It kind of makes me a little sad. (laughs) I never get sad about this, but um, that's the last time I walked with two legs. Wow, I never even realized that. Um, It makes me happy to know that when I was walking with my two legs, I was smiling and people smiled back to me. So that's a nice memory to have. But um, apparently um, this 81-year-old Russian man was coming out of the medical building as well. I don't know if I had even seen him when he came out, but he got behind the wheel of his car and um, he was highly under the influence of medication and who knows what else. And he said that he put his car in reverse and stepped on the gas instead of the brake. 
he came up onto the walkway where I was in reverse. And I remember the sound of his car. I must have been bouncing up maybe onto the walkway. But when you're on a sidewalk, you're definitely not thinking that a car is going to come onto the sidewalk. It's like the last thing you think. If you're crossing a street or obviously in a car, these are things that you know um, could potentially happen. But being on a sidewalk, I just never even never even crossed my mind, especially a car coming at me in reverse. But I was very blessed because of the fact that I was an athlete. I had been running six to nine miles a day in my travels. I was jacked. I had abs, so solid. Um, even though I had been bed rested, um, I was still in amazing shape. And I treated the car, I mean, I didn't think of it as a car. Looking back, it was almost as if I was playing basketball back in the day and someone really big and strong was trying to box me out. So I just, I remember, I don't know how fast the car was going. Whatever the speed was, it was the perfect speed for me because I was able to put my hands on the trunk as it hit me and sort of lift myself up because the police officer said me being 5'7 and how high this trunk was, almost 10 out of 10 times someone like me would have just gotten sucked under. And the witnesses said that my feet started dragging a little. So I was headed right, right under that car. And when I look at it now, I do find it miraculous that even though my arms were so injured, still able to i was still strong enough i mean it's proof that when some type of obstacle or adversity is coming towards you, towards you it doesn't matter what you think your limitations are you're way stronger than you think so i picked myself up and i got thrown onto the back of his trunk and cracked his back windshield with the right side of my head and he said in the police report that he didn't even know that i was on the back of his car apparently he only slammed on his brakes because he heard people scream so when he slammed on his brakes, so imagine I got thrown this way. So my torso and everything went right suddenly. Mm -hmm. And then he hit the brakes and I got thrown to my left. So everything that didn't tear this way. Tore on the other side. Tore the other way, yes. It's sort of like um, a hurricane. You know, the winds come to the right. And then they go to and the then, left. Yeah, and then I come back. So I just got shredded. My pectoral muscle down. And... Um, I got thrown to the street and smashed my head <laughs> and I was hemorrhaging blood and cerebral spinal fluid from my ears and my nose. These are just things I found out later. Um, I don't remember being knocked out, um, but I do know that somebody tore me off the street and it was actually the driver's wife who was trying to push me into the back of her car. And the police told me later that they were planning on dumping me somewhere. And I didn't even know this, but if I leave the scene of the accident and they leave the scene of the accident, then I also, I lose a whole bunch of rights. And they were t trying to offer me money. And I know that I was, I, I put my arms up. It's just a memory I have of putting my arms up. Like, I do not want to go in this car. And the reason I didn't want to go in the car was just because I knew that they were bad drivers. <laughs> I was just thinking like, you are not a good driver. I don't want to ride with you. Please don't make me ride with you. But um, apparently they had offered me $20 and it went all the way up to 200. I found out in court 
um, to they're trying to get me to not call the police because this driver's wife said that her husband has a medical condition, a heart condition. And if the police come, then he's going to have a heart attack. And essentially that would be on me. And this is the guy who just hit you. Yes. But now there's people that thank are, God. thank God there were people there. So Tamika ran over. And I don't think I've ever even told this whole part of this story before, just because it's just, ugh, just bad energy. But Tamika ran over, thank God, and pushed this woman off of me. And right. I remember, I remember just thinking like, I, if I'm going to get into a taxi, I don't want this to be my taxi. But obviously, I had no idea what was going on. So it would just be very chaotic. There was lots of people involved. And I would it would be chaos. And then I would go into my head. And I just kept hearing this music, which I, I think of this a lot when I start getting stressed. <laughs> it would just say, the music was, la, 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 la. And it was <laughs> a pink background. And I had puppies and kittens and cupcakes and pizza and all of these amazing sunshine rainbows just amazing things everything was sort of floating around and it was just such good energy and it just was la 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 and i just felt oh, i could feel the sunshine on my face and it was wonderful and then it would be like and then a chaos a chaos all around me no idea why everyone's angry. Everyone's mad at me. I don't know why everyone's mad at me. I can't figure out what's happening. Um, apparently, I was saying that I thought my hips were broken or my arm was broken. Um, I think it must have been very terrible for people to see what happened. Um, but I don't remember. I, apparently, I was crying and <laughs> just not good but i don't remember feeling pain at all honestly when i think back to it i was just in my la 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 world um no pain i just know that i did not like the chaos and i couldn't i didn't know what was happening i just felt like i really messed up and hurt, uh, people are really mad at me and i don't know how to fix it um but i i learned in my lawsuit that somebody called 911 and then the wife of the driver yelled to him in Russian and he got into his car and sped away. So they hit you, mm -hmm. try to get you in the car, mm -hmm. that doesn't happen, and then they take off. He took off. Oh, he took off. She stayed. She yelled to him to go. Um, she was surrounded by people and he just left. He got in the car. I did see him. I can see him right now yeah. in my mind. Um, he had his hand on the roof of his car and another hand on the um, door. And he looked <clears throat> so lost and so sad. And it made me sad when I made eye contact with him <clears throat> because I just remember that my heart broke for him a little. I felt like, oh my goodness, like he's such a, like, why is he so sad? And I felt, I just wanted, I sort of wanted to hug him. And then he left. And apparently um, they were told to take the wife and, and they didn't know she was a wife at the time and lock her in an office in the medical building, which is what they did. Until the cops came. <clears throat> and then... Yes. Um, me, on the other hand, come on, it's Jersey. I could have been hit anywhere. I could have been hit in front of a nail salon, a pizza place, a bagel place, tanning salon. Nope. I got hit in front of a medical building. Best place ever to get hit. <laughs> so you had medical attention probably right away. I don't remember any of it, but I just yeah. know that was lucky. Um, I also know that 
if timing had been a little different and it had been only, at, I don't know, one minute later, those little ladies would have been the ones to get hit. And honestly, even though I would have never wished this journey upon myself, I can say 100% without any doubt that I would much rather me get hit than, God forbid, those little, I can't even imagine, just apart from their injuries, I cannot even imagine what that would have looked like. And I just, I'm just very grateful. I feel like I made some type of pact with God or whoever you want to call the higher power um, at some point, because I don't think I would have recovered from that. So injury wise, you come out, so you wake up, like, when do you wake up? I am, I was never, um, I was never in a coma and I was never clinging to life at any point. So it wasn't that serious that I was in the ICU dying. But you got hit by a car and you got tossed around. But I did have, um, now I did get my MRIs. So the problem lawsuit wise was what I know all of my injuries, but was I more, was I more injured because of accident A or B? Accident A said all my injuries were B. Accident B said all my injuries were A. Um, And this is within, so you have two traumatic injuries. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are traumatic. I don't give a shit what everyone says. Like you have, you know, you get hit in a car accident and get tossed around and hit your head. And well, and this is even before like concussion protocols, really. Like before <laughs> yeah, no, concussion no one, protocol no one was even like, talked you know, about yeah. concussions. And then six weeks later, you get run over mm-hmm. um, and then hit your head again twice, maybe three times. I do we know how many times? On the no side? idea, but I do know that my skull was fractured in a few spots. Um, so you have these I was, traumatic events. I was hemorrhaging blood and brain fluid from my ears and my nose. Um, I have spinal cord So regardless injury. of whether you were in ICU or not, this is traumatic stuff. <laughs> yeah, this is just what I say to make myself yeah. feel better. I'm like, I was fine. It was just a little yeah, bump and grind. Yeah, I'm not in ICU. I'm not on life support. But it was just a little jumping on top of the guy's bumper and uh, yeah, doing doing some dips on the guy's bumper while he's got you tossing and turning. Yes, there. I am... Um, so what was the injuries out post out of the, the second uh, My brain was sliced and diced all over the place. My brain was very badly injured. Um, like I said, I had the brain fluid hemorrhaging out of my ears and my nose, um, skull fractures, spinal cord injury, um, herniated discs like throughout my whole spinal cord actually. Um, I mean throughout my whole back. Um, my... <laughs> My pectoral wall um, completely, I mean, destroyed. I could see the muscles um, on the surface of my skin shredded. Pretty much my entire body was injured from my head to my toe. I remember seeing, like, my on my right leg, I remember being in the hospital and having um, a Charlie horse on my, I forget the name of it, it's a big band that's that goes from your knee. It's not IT band. Is there like is that the medical word? I'm not it, sure. It was an IT band, but I forget what it is. But it's a very thick muscle. It basically connects your kneecap to the rest of your leg. Well, that got severed, and I had a Charlie horse, and I was watching it um, spasm right under my skin. And there was nothing I could do because normally in a Charlie horse, you kind of stretch yourself out. out. I just remember like, this is actually 
the worst. Oh, I'm feeling right now. This is like the worst pain I've ever felt in my life. Um, I definitely remember feeling like there was angels around me um, in the parking lot. And I've often thought, looking back at it, I thought, well, there was a bunch of people there. Is it because they were there? No. I just felt, apart from my la-la-la, I felt like there was a ring of angels around me who were all linking arms and keeping me safe. And I just knew I was going to be fine. Um, Well, you had a positive attitude. I mean, I think just to this point, though, you're dealing, when you left school, you go on this missionary. And there's a reason not everyone thinks that way when they leave college, like to do good and to be involved. And I mean, that takes a positive person and a positive mindset. And then coming out of just hearing you talk that first incident, not necessarily really, I mean, I don't think there's too many people listening that would say, okay, this guy hit me, he was texting, but I don't really care. Right. But then, you know, realizing just his negative attitude, then yeah, like he should pay rightly so. But most people would be like, no, that's okay. You know, or, or most well, people. I was, I was annoyed that they were telling me that I needed to do a lawsuit just yeah. because I thought I don't want to stay here. Like I really just want to go, go back. I want to go back to the work that I love. And I was just thinking how. Well, they explain I have a lot of medical bills. Yeah. And I have to be in a lawsuit so that I'll get the money for my medical bills. And obviously, I did not have money to be paying those medical well, bills. Well, I missionary I work still, yeah, I still wouldn't have that Wall Street. Yeah, exactly. And even if I'd been on Wall Street, unless I was a top gun, there's yeah. no way that I would have been able to just pay these medical bills. So that sort of trapped me. But one thing that I really am grateful for is that it happened in the middle of the day. That was a warm day. And the medical building where it was was all windows. So people inside people saw, saw it. Yeah. And again, if somebody's on a sidewalk, walkway, parking lot, whatever you want to call that area, is if somebody gets hit <laughs> at a car driving in reverse um, where the car is not supposed to be, it's not going to be my fault. However, it does help to have all of those people that sprung into action and saw it just because... Um, the more the better. And I have thought about how blessed I am that the accidents didn't happen in reverse. If that man had hit me, oh, sorry, that's my dog that's snoring, by the way. You've got a snoring dog. (laughs) If you can hear that noise, that's my little little dog snoring. We love dogs. (laughs) He's, He's dreaming away. So if I had been hit in the middle of the day, by the first driver um, who was texting, we wouldn't have seen the whole front part of his car lit up by his phone. Yeah. And if I had been hit at walking night. at night, oh yeah, nobody would have been there. And not to mention the fact that either I would have been left there, or they um, would have taken, or me. they would have taken me and dumped me somewhere. Either way, yeah. Either way, um, it was not going to be good. I just felt very grateful my mentality wasn't mentality of being in the united states my mentality is being in the areas that i was and i just felt grateful that there's people there um i felt grateful that i there was it was a medical building i felt grateful for so many different things and at this point now i'm in and out of the hospital on bed rest 
and I, after the accident, after this accident, um, I had a long list of surgeries that I needed and I was in a wheelchair full time, full time. Um, my doctors were telling me that, um, should definitely amputate my right leg above the knee. Now, was this due to the brain trauma, back trauma, or the accident itself? Well, it wasn't right away that they were telling me to amputate. This is probably, I'd say, a year after my accident because I had had so many surgeries on my body and my leg had been just um, stabilized in a brace. I wasn't using it, so it had atrophied to whatever the medical term is for peg leg, I forget. Mm. But they told me that the atrophy was permanent and irreversible. And I had so many other things going on. They just said, you know, amputate this and let's move on to other things. Because truthfully for me, my biggest problem were my brain injuries. Um, I was, for the first two years, even longer, if I was to look back, um, I I should look this up actually, but, I would have migraines. I, I still get migraines every day, which is one of the reasons why I like this drink. <laughs> but um, I had post-traumatic migraines, and they would, and I was trying not to take my medication because the only thing that was helping me with my migraines was heavy narcotics. And the problem with that is I was still having surgeries, so yeah. I thought this is not a good plan. Um, and that's why I didn't want any. I was I didn't want to take any pain medication for my body too because I thought well if my if my spinal cord is injured um, I need to know what's hurting and the pain is my body letting me know and I don't want to numb things and then move a certain way and hurt myself somewhere else um, the most traumatizing thing for me was the fact that my breasts were completely destroyed just. I was deformed looking at my face. I didn't recognize the person in the mirror at all. Um, My traumatic brain injuries made it very difficult for me to think clearly. Um, I'd been so positive, like you said, my whole life. That was like my superpower for me. And I wasn't positive, obviously, the kind of Pollyanna positivity that's almost fake, you know, where I was pretending like bad things didn't happen. I was positive because I knew bad things happened and I knew that my only defense, my truest defense against life is what I can control and I can control how I react to it. And there was always the ability to focus on the good things in any situation. But with traumatic brain injuries, you lose the filter. So it's just a tsunami of anything you've never worked through, constantly just steamrolling through my head. It was like a, just this constant video slideshow of just terrible things that I'd been through that um, that I'd seen and I couldn't escape it. And in the past and growing up, I always would play sports and work out as my therapy and I lost that. You couldn't do it. I couldn't do anything. and. Um, my migraines would get increasingly worse and worse and worse, let's say for a couple days. And then it almost felt like my brain was swelling. And then all of a sudden I would start hemorrhaging blood and cerebral spinal fluid from my ears and my nose and back in the hospital. And, um, it was just this constant cycle. And my doctors were saying, you, 
you have to take your medication because you it's hard to get on top of these migraines mm-hmm. once you let them get to a point. And then I would have no choice but to have to get IV medication and stay in the hospital. And each time it would bleed out of my ear. The feeling, the feeling of bleeding out of my ears um, was terrible. <laughs> um, and I would look, I, I had different surgeries on my face, on my nose, and um, to try to repair the sinus um, and nasal passages, but nothing was working. And so they actually widened my nose in an attempt to fix everything. So that was a botched surgery, but I still have the stents actually um, propping open my I don't know if it's my nasal or sinus cavity, but I cannot breathe out of my right nostril at all. And so I definitely have um, another surgery, hopefully just one, just on that part. But I just was so over having surgeries. I just, cause like, ah, I just don't want any more surgery. So I stopped having my surgeries and I just said, you know what, for my own mental health, for my own mental health, I need to try to move forward. The problem is though, being in lawsuits, there's no way to move forward. I'm just constantly being brought back to that day. So by constantly being brought to that, there's no closure. And tie in like what I said about the traumatic brain injuries, there's no escape. I'm just in bed having this constant slideshow, constantly being brought back to the day that it happened, constantly being brought back to my injuries, constantly being at these medical evaluations where all these orthopedists are basically saying that I'm going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. I'm not going to be um, walking, much less running. Um, they started suggesting a motorized wheelchair for me. And I had been so depressed. <laughs> and I really just wanted to end things because I felt like I was never going to get back to the kids. Um, the children that we had picked out for the orphanage, all those plans fell through. And I felt unbelievable guilt about that. Just wondering where the children ended up. Are they back on the streets? Did somebody bad take them? Um, I was pretending on social media that nothing had happened. So most people didn't even know it was an accident. I, um, I loved going into my Facebook and my picture was just happy me from before all this happened. And when people would talk to me, they just assumed I was in another country. And that was like my escape. That was like my long run. But things were increasingly getting worse and all I wanted to do was end it. So did I, you contemplate? So like I started yeah. By end it I mean kill myself. So yeah. I would give myself um, three month increments. So I'd say, okay, things are terrible. But if you can hold on for three more months, 90 days or whatever the amount would be, um, and things aren't better, you can just end your life. And knowing that I had an out made me feel free. Why 90 days? Why not like 30 or 60 or like a different? Um, I'm not really sure. I think maybe because my travels, I always felt like if you had a new child or person that had come through um, into either a refugee camp or an orphanage, 
I felt like the biggest change would happen in 90 days. days yeah. 30 days is like mm, maybe Still a little. Know. You don't know. Yes. And I also knew how slow things worked medically. Yeah. And um, honestly, I think I probably did it because I didn't want to actually kill myself. If I said 30 days, it would come pretty quick. And then what? Yeah. So I just kept saying every 90 days. And when the 90 days would come, I would give myself another 90 days. And... So were you at first 90 days, like you, you, every day I would fantasize about killing myself, but were you making progress to give you another 90 days? No, nothing good was happening. (laughs) So it was just the fact that you had, it was actually getting worse. And because I feel like I'd never been traumatically or long-term injured before I was used to, Hey, you know, I sprained my ankle and uh, the doctor said two to four weeks or whatever it is. And then you're back at it. So maybe part of me was thinking, maybe in 90 days, uh, I'll be walking. Walking. Um, I had very unrealistic expectations for myself. I think that I was probably setting myself up for failure each time. Hmm. Um, I was in complete denial that I was even using a wheelchair. I hated the wheelchair. I would just look at it when I was in bed and just it just made me sick. Um, I just felt like life was passing me by and after a while I stopped even looking on social media because I felt like I now I'm back in the states and everybody is like getting married and having kids and I'm just crippled in bed and I was eating terrible foods and just feeling like I'm just going to turn into someone who's 700 pounds <laughs> and I like I was like I'm eventually going to take up my bed and my mom was really great trying to cheer me up. Um, she was honestly my only um, source of happiness or laughter. She would sometimes, we'd go to these long medical reviews. It took a lot for my mom to not lash out at the doctors just because she would see um, how mean everybody was to me. They didn't mean to be, but this is the way they are. it's like I wasn't there when they were talking about me. It's like I'm getting poked and prodded. It's like I'm not even a person. I remember actually... Um, I feel so emotional today. I don't know why, but I remember. Um, I went to um, the orthopedist, and it was Christmas time. It was probably a couple of days before Christmas, and I remember I was wearing my Santa hat, and I used to dress up as Santa Claus in the different orphanages that I worked at. Um, I had this awesome Santa costume and with stuff, pillows and stuff, and whatever. It was awesome. By the way, it's hard to dance around the piñata when you're in sand and it's 900 million degrees and you're wearing a, a, Santa a Santa costume that was one of my dad's from Winners in New York City. <laughs> it's thick wool. Thick wool with a thick um, beard. And anyways, it's just, that's difficult. So I would think back to things like that and think, okay, that was bad. You're going to be fine. I would just always compare things like that. But anyways, I was wearing my Santa hat. And I remember I had stickers on my cheeks (laughs) and I made cookies for the people in the office and I wrote a cheesy card and I was so excited that it was Christmas time. I was just so happy I had this hat and I went into the review and the doctor just said very matter of factly that, um, you know, he was talking about putting me into the motorized wheelchair. I was thinking, hey, I don't want to be in a motorized wheelchair. I don't want to insult people that are in motorized wheelchairs. I was just in a very 
bad state of mind and I was thinking I didn't want to be a burden and I just felt like I was a huge burden on my mom and motorized wheelchair means now I'm going to need a special car. I need a special car. My mom is throughout her back so many times just trying to get my regular wheelchair in the car which was heavy. A motorized wheelchair. Yeah, you need a car with a ramp. a van or something. Yeah, Yeah, van, car with a ramp. Um, I definitely am going to need lots of ramps around the house. We're going to have to completely rearrange things for me and when you get put into a motorized wheelchair, someone like me, I atrophy, I still do, I atrophy at rapid speed ever since I got injured. So I was thinking like a motorized wheelchair, I'm not gonna be using any of my muscles. And once all that stops, you you can't get it back. So I remember the doctor just saying very matter of fact, I was asking him, okay, like when can I run? That's all I wanted to know. I just wanted to run so badly. Um, I dreamed about it every night. And when I had a dream, I was regular me. I wasn't injured me. And the doctor got annoyed because I guess I was asking him this question all the time. And I just was in complete denial. And he just said very matter-of-factly that I am not going to run. I'm probably never going to walk. And he was talking about a brace for my leg. Um, and there was two different kinds. And the one that he gave me was just like a regular... I mean, it was a $5,000 brace. It wasn't regular. But um, when I was looking at it, it was basically saying for somebody that's just essentially bedridden. And there was another one that I saw on this box that was for somebody that was active. And they had all these like images of them doing all these different things. I'm like, why are you giving me this one? I, this one's not for me. I want that one. And he was very adamant about, no, that this one is not for me. The one that I have, he said, oh, this is the one for me. And then I guess he just, I just wasn't getting in the message. And I remember him very specifically and very coldly telling me my situation. And normally, um, like I said, for my first accident, I would wear my hat kind of low. Because if I wear my hat, if I wear a hat and I'm crying while I'm wheeling or even crutching now, I just tilt my head down and people can't really see what's happening. Um, but with my Santa hat, there is no hiding. I feel my tears starting to come. I'm like, oh no, oh no, it's gonna happen. And then it happened. I was just, I just remember my tears dripping down my face and I remember feeling my stickers just slide off my face. <laughs> but, so the thing that would make me feel better would be sort of touching up my suicide letter. So. The suicide letter. You started writing the suicide letter from the first 90 days? After that first, first 90, 90 days, days ended. I just wrote a little bit. I just made some um, bullet points. Um, and so this would be the letter? That I would give my family. Leave for my family. Leave for your family. Mm-hmm. And my plan was to take a bunch of pills. So finally, I realized that Nothing's getting better. And honestly, I hated myself. I couldn't even look myself in the mirror. There was a few times where I smiled to myself in the mirror and it was only because I would be looking in the mirror and I would just sort of touch my face. Just because, how do I put this? I didn't recognize a person in the mirror, but when I touched my cheek, for instance, I can see my finger um, touching my cheek and then I I can feel it. And then when I'm looking in the mirror, I see that it's actually me. Did you not recognize the person in the mirror because of 
of my my nose. Yeah. And the accident, or just because of the mental state, like where you were and like how far you've gone from the trauma. From... I just was very swollen. My nose just looked like a meatball to me. I was like, yeah. "That's not my nose." I always loved my nose because it's a Sullivan nose that all my siblings have, and I just, I just kind of disgusted with myself. Um, I sort of blame myself. I, I would look through my whole life, different things that I did that led me to a situation where I was, I could not even fathom that I was in two different accidents. I was embarrassed. I mean, most of the time, even now, I just say I was in one because it's complicated and it's embarrassing. Like, I just was like, who does that happen to? It just feels like it seems unrealistic. And I just felt embarrassed that two bad things could happen to me in a row. Um, and I felt embarrassed that I wasn't healing. Um, I, I just hated myself and I hated my life. So finally, one day, um, I was like, this is it. This is it. I'm going to do it. And I felt really excited that I finally allowed myself to do it. And I had this huge, almost Costco-sized um, bottle. <laughs> Sorry. That's like my brain injuries. All of a sudden, I can remember all the words to an MC Hammer Except song the, from back in the day. And then I'll be like, the what's the word? Oh, yeah, ice fork. <laughs> <laughs> so weird. Um, um, it was an ex- like extreme sleeping pills, essentially. Maximum strength, I guess, is what you say. <laughs> and I rewrote my letter and touched it up. And um, I remember when I was writing it, I just tears streaming down my face. And I remember it kept smearing what I was writing. And that annoyed me. I was like, ah. And I kept looking down at myself and just... I was just like, this is just gross. I'm just, I'm just like a parasite. I'm just sitting here. Um, I've stopped my mom from being able to live. Nobody even cares about me, really. Like, I just felt like um, a lot of people that I thought were my friends just were nowhere to be found. And I felt like I had helped all these people in the past, and I couldn't even help myself. That is what disgusted me the most. I was like, you are worthless. You can do nothing to help yourself. You're, and then I start thinking, like, you never helped anyone. I just felt like I shouldn't be here. And it felt like the world would be way better without me. I felt like in my past, I had so many people had wanted to date me and um, marry me. And I didn't want any distractions from the work that I was doing. And um, so I was just single. And I felt like I messed up because whenever I was in the hospital, I'd see people that had their husbands with them or a boyfriend or someone that cared. And I was like, I just, no one's ever going to love me. Look at me. I don't love me. Who, like, just no. So I wrote the letter and I had this big bottle and I opened it up and I took maybe two or three, I forget, pills. And I just hysterically cried. And, and then it made me more mad that I wasn't downing it because in my mind, I was like guzzling these things and I'd just go to sleep and it was over. And, and so then I was getting more upset because this is my one big thing that I can finally do right and I'm not even doing it. And I couldn't figure out why I wasn't doing it. And then I had this 
epiphany. I was going to say voice in my head, but I don't even know. It wasn't even a voice in my head. It was just, I just knew that I didn't want to die. I just did not want to live the way that I was living. I was like, you just hate this because if I would look at, let's say, a video of baby elephants in an elephant orphanage in Kenya, I would feel so happy. And um, if I looked at videos of puppies or kittens, or if I watched the sunset, one of the highlights of those years, I would say, in bed was, I remember that at whatever time the sun would set and where I, where my bed was, um, I, I try to think, like, does this happen year round? I don't know, but all I know is that when the sun was setting, the way that it would set, the light, the golden light would go around and then it would touch me right on my face and go down and it made me feel like I was connected to the world. It made me feel like I felt connected to the sun. I felt like no matter what happened, the sun and the moon were always there. And it just made me, it was the only time I truly felt connected and I felt part of the world. I just have always felt connected to the sun. And like I said, um, my nickname in the Mayan villages was Sunshine and they would call me the golden girl. And I remember a bunch of little ladies actually would always tell me that I was like sunshine on a dark cloudy day. And it felt sort of prophetic for me to have the sun touching me. It was like the sun cared about the fact that I was there. Mm. And it felt like a hug. And it also connected me to everybody else in the world, especially the people that I had been blessed enough to work with because I knew that they had the same sun that was touching them. And that made me feel like I wasn't alone. So I started realizing that night after I let go of the fact that I couldn't even kill myself. Like I said, I realized that I didn't want to die. I just did not want to live with the pain. And then I realized the reason why I hate my life is because I'm not doing anything with my life. And I thought about the fact that I was so negative. I mean, the man who hit me passed away. And this other guy from the first accident was terrible. And me being mad at them, does, is that helping? Really? I was like, do you think either of them care? No. <laughs> so how is that working out for you? you hating the world, hating yourself, blah, 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 whatever it is, you, this is on you. I realized, you know what, I need to take responsibility. So um, the, I think probably the most crippling thing of all is not just having victim mentality, but having victim mentality was digging me further into the ground. It was literally like each negative thought I had, I was like taking a bucket and just digging into the ground and stepping into it. And all I'm doing is just sitting in bed waiting for somebody to all of a sudden snap their fingers and make everything great. And I started thinking about this Disney mentality that little girls are fed since, since the earliest age I could think of for myself, where all these movies end with a man rescuing the woman. And... I was sort of horrified to realize that I actually was hoping for some Prince Charming to come in and rescue me. First of all, how am I going to meet Prince Charming from my bed? <laughs>
let's start there. But I thought, okay, yes, you have helped people in your travels and you somehow managed to save them so you can save yourself. So I thought about all of these women, like the women in Yalpamech, Guatemala, that I told you about, um, who had been through these horrific things, and they told me how they got through it. And the most powerful weapon of all is your mind. And they told me that I was going to need these lessons for a reason. And I felt like the universe or God or whatever you want to call it was preparing me for this event. And I thought about all the movies that I love. I love Rocky, Gladiator, Braveheart, um, Over the Top. Remember Lincoln Hawk? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Turns out. <laughs> so I realized that my entire life, I have loved movies of the underdog. And I love the beginning of the movie when underdog is, everything's getting set up, so everything is getting stacked up against this guy. And I loved watching this person overcome all odds. It's one of the reasons why I absolutely loved the work that I was doing because I realized that it takes a lot to break the human spirit. Mm -hmm. um, here I am laying in bed thinking my spirit's broken. My spirit's not broken, my body's broken. I am tough as nails, so I started pumping myself up. I thought, all right, think about basketball in high school. It doesn't matter what the scoreboard reads at halftime. It could read Life 100, Sullivan 0. If there's still time left in the game, I can turn this around. And it doesn't even matter if I win as long as I fight. It's all about the fight. And I thought, I am laying in bed, <laughs> blaming everybody but myself for my position. And it's not going to fix me. All it's doing is hurting me. Um, me being mad at the fact that I got injured is like fighting the sun rising and setting. This is a fact. This is how it is. You are right now physically disabled. You have surgeries left. You're in a wheelchair. Yeah, you don't look like the person that you thought that you were. Um, you may be disgusted by how you look. You may be disgusted by how you move. But your soul is exactly the same. Um, all of those lessons, all of that light, it's there. And if anything, I, I knew that there was still a spark in me because I would watch videos online. And when I watched them, I felt this rush of inspiration overtake me. So I thought, okay, well, that's a sign, obviously. You need to focus on things like that. Just because you're in bed doesn't mean that you can't pump yourself up because laying in bed, you're pumping yourself down and that means you have power. So then I was thinking, okay, what else do I not like? I don't like my wheelchair. Well, how could I, it's not like I'm ignorant and don't know that there are people that are crying, wishing they could have a wheelchair. I thought your wheelchair is not holding you back. Your wheelchair is your mobility. Why am I getting mad at the wheelchair? That is my key right there. If I didn't have a wheelchair, I'd be able to go nowhere. I'm choosing to be in bed because I don't want to, what, be seen? And so I realized how fortunate I was to have a wheelchair. I realized how fortunate I was to live in an area where 
I can actually go outside and not be afraid about different things that are going to happen to me. Um, I realized how lucky I was to have my mom continually pumping me up when I'm so depressed. I mean, get out of here. I'm like a wet rag. Who wants to hang out with that? <laughs> I don't even want to hang out with myself. So of course, nobody else wants to hang out with me. So I realized, okay, in terms of my accident, I need to just let it go. I need to, I need to accept the apologies I'm never going to receive. I had um, dreamed numerous times about the man who hit me um, in my second accident. And in my dreams, it was almost like, um, what's it called, the night before Christmas? Or the ghost of Christmas? I don't know. What's the thing with the ghost of Christmas past that comes through? Well, I think that's the night before Christmas. Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol. Oh, okay. Yeah, we were close. <laughs> something to do with Christmas. Yeah, something to do with Christmas. So in my dream, this man, he's look, the look on his face is the exact look that he had when I saw him in my accident. And in the dream, there's a, an older man with him who I can't see who he is, but he's older and powerful and very compassionate. And the man who hit me um, is just crying and he has that look on his face like he's so sad about what's happened. And it was repeated. That dream just kept happening, and I felt like, so what he was doing was he was looking in on my life, and so he would see me trying to do physical therapy. He would see me crying myself, not even to sleep because I barely slept, but I remember having a hard time with my pillows because I would cry so much that my pillows were wet. So I'd have to figure out how to move myself when I'm like every part of my body is injured to try to flip my pillow around and then find a spot that wasn't wet. And that's one of the things that it just really affected him. And sometimes in my dream, he would mouth that he was sorry. And I actually started feeling like he suffered more than I suffered because his whole life was defined by what happened to me because he passed away shortly after that. So he didn't have a chance to do something else um, to make it better. And he could have been an amazing person his entire life. And then this one thing happened and it was not hard to forgive him because I saw he had no idea where he was. It was harder to forgive his wife because she was the one that was supposed to be taking care of him. And this poor man had no idea where he was. And I cannot even imagine what it felt like for this sweet little old man to injure a girl right at the end of his life. So forgiving him, actually it was like a weight off of my shoulders. I realized, okay, um, I had been linked up with wounded warriors who were recovering down at Walter Reed Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland. And is that where you were getting that where you went to get I treatment? Had, I had, I, no. Um, I had been linked up and told um, to be going down there, but I just didn't, I didn't want to be around anybody. So, no, I did not go. And then I started going. When I went down there the first time, it was like, being at college on a college campus for people who are crippled. <laughs> it was I'm awesome. So young. It was well, apart from the young, it was just like he, me being in physical therapy um, was very depressing. A, a 
apart from everything else, just because I felt like there was no excitement in physical therapy. It was just everyone's just kind of going through their motions, and I felt like I was just doing stretches. And so, in terms of going through the motions, because you weren't progressing, in terms of where you envisioned, or was it just the physical therapist physical in therapist. general? It was just like I think that people were afraid maybe they'd injure me worse. Um, I do remember one time I got turned over and my hamstring shredded. That was bad when that happened. Um, (laughs) But I just felt like the physical therapists were holding me back. And the few people that I had met who had disabilities were also very depressed and only wanted to be friends with people with disabilities. And I only knew about two people that had disabilities and I didn't feel connected to them at all. I felt like everyone expected me to be connected to them just because we both used wheelchairs. I did not feel connected at all. And I felt like anytime I went anywhere, like the supermarket or the mall with my mom, um, when people would stop and ask me what happened, they would always say things like, oh, why? My nephew's in a wheelchair. He has cerebral palsy. He's single. Maybe you two to get together. And I'm just like, why does everybody think just because I'm in a wheelchair, I'm going to date somebody in a wheelchair? Oh, it sounds great. Yeah, okay. That's all I need is just somebody in a wheelchair. What about anything about him? Is he nice? Does he have a nice smile? And I thought about how my friends that are black would always say that's what people would do. They're like, hey, you know, Jamal's over there. You're both black. That makes sense. <laughs> just like, I get it now. So now you got it. I got it. I was like, this is not. How- so it's almost like, pro- like well, not <laughs> racial profiling, but like disability profiling. Oh, yeah. Right? All the time. And I, I did feel like this curtain kind of got pulled away. And I saw myself into this whole new world that I had no idea. And it was very strange for me because when I would go out, everybody just saw me as a girl in a wheelchair. And I think that was part of my depression because, like I said, I was in denial about my situation and felt like it didn't matter what I'd been through my whole life, what I had done. The way that society viewed me was just almost like I was just, I wasn't invisible because it was very obvious people were staring at me, but it was like, I was just this girl in a wheelchair and I didn't have a name. Um, It didn't matter what I did in the past. I could have been in a wheelchair my whole life. I felt like my identity was gone. And that was part of my depression. But then when I got to Walter Reed, there's all these people I relate to. People who followed their hearts and just went out and went against the grain. And in this situation, they joined the military. And they were fearless. And they were um, just like I was. They had their cause. And they were willing to die for it. And they were so passionate about it. The difference is they were all together. And I was essentially... Um, I was the only American in most of the places where I was. But they had all been athletes their whole lives. They were super in shape, in the best shape of their life before they got injured, which was the same as me. They had so much energy and love for life, and the difference was they had no limitations in their minds. And they were all a little crazy and (laughs) trying different things, popping wheelies. No one was afraid to flip out of their wheelchair, doing all these fun things, um, playing adaptive sports. So I started playing wheelchair basketball and it was like a fire was lit inside of my soul. It was unbelievable. It felt like shooting a basket in my wheelchair. I remember the first time I made a basket. Actually, it was at my mom's house in the backyard when the first time I made a basket in the wheelchair. I was just like, (laughs) I could have just made the game winning shot in the NCAA championships. That's how excited it was. 
And I realized, okay, wow, this makes me happy. And so my friends down at Walter Reed were like, all right, well, what you need to do is you need to join a regular gym. And I was thinking, all right, it's easy for you guys to say that because you are all crippled and you're all together. So you're working out in a gym, but it's all of you together. What am I going to do in a gym in a wheelchair? Like, <laughs> I was recovering between my mom's in New Jersey, which is about 12 miles west of Manhattan, and my dad, who lived in Tribeca, about a block from the World Trade Center. So um, I'm thinking, okay, either way, I'm going to, these are not places where you want to just casually slide into the gym. I mean, everybody looks like a fitness model. There's like oons, oons music playing. So I'm just imagining myself, like all the music's like ee, screeching to a halt. And you as got, you walk in, well, yeah, as you're coming. I'm strolling in in my wheelchair. Mm. <laughs> so they're like, whoa, tough Irish chick from Jersey. We didn't know you got intimidated so quickly. That's exactly what they needed to say. <laughs> so I joined it. And I remember my first time at the New York Sports Club. <laughs> I realize actually, this would be my advice actually, if anybody is still listening and I am rambling on, <laughs> my advice to you would be to wear shirts that have inspirational quotes on them. Because for me, when I was in the gym, I felt like if I had a shirt that was either funny, um, I can't think of a funny shirt right now. <laughs> like right now, um, oh. well right now that I'm a new amputee, um, Surprise, everybody, I'm an amputee. <laughs> but it would be like if I wore a t shirt that said three out of four ain't bad. But the inspirational quotes like never quit, never surrender, warrior mode, beast mode on, shirts like that made me feel like I was sending a message to the people before they could judge me, like I'm fighting back. I didn't want them to see me as this cripple girl. I want, And by just wearing the shirt, I actually felt like I had a little bit of armor on me. like. Because I was afraid people would make fun of me. But you can't make fun of somebody who's fighting back. So that's what I did. And I went to the back of the gym and found the little, um, I would call it the hand cycle machine, but a regular person would call it what? I think it's a hand, mic. It's a hand oh, cycle. Oh, it is? Yeah, hand oh. cycle. Okay. Wow, the hand cycle machine. Yeah. <laughs> Which, P.S., is exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> so I just do that. Um, I didn't really know how to lift weights. I do, you know, a few, um, a few of the machines with no weight, which by the way is also exhausting. Mm. Just doing the machine is exhausting, but really I would just stick to the hand cycle. Um, when I was at home, I would make a point to try to flex any muscles that I could while I was in bed. Um, so I was continually flexing my stomach. I would be continually flexing um, my thigh on my wow. left side. Yeah, whatever I could, I was flexing and holding and then letting go. And just by doing that, I started feeling like, wow, I'm actually starting to feel a little bit of muscle under all my blob. <laughs> and In your core. Yeah, I guess you would say in yeah. your core. Um, so something else I realized was that when you get injured at all, all of the food that you're being sent is, quote, happy food. Comfort food. So it's, Comfort not, food. it's not healthy food that you would normally Exactly. And when you're bedridden, yeah. I'm not I'm not really being able to get out and get other things. Yeah. So I am watching TV and just Popping throwing back the donuts and Snickers. Yeah. And um, the problem is, though, that 
obviously that type of food in general, if that's your diet, is going to depress you long term. Yeah. Not necessarily like homemade donuts, but I'm talking about like super processed food. Yeah. Is it might make me feel great and definitely makes me but feel like I'm long, addicted to but it. But in the long run. It's going to depress me. It, it actually alters chemicals in your brain. So I thought, okay, I can change that because if this is depressing me, why don't I try a different diet? And why don't I see what happens if I eat healthy? And honestly, once I was going to the gym, I realized, okay, on the hand cycle machine, I've been here for what feels like three decades, and it says I've burned four calories, <laughs> which is... I burned four calories. I, I gained four calories just by looking at Snickers, let alone eating them. So I started realizing like, okay, you know what? I have to try to eat healthier because my body is not going to heal itself based off of honey buns that have been in a wrapper for since 1975. <laughs> so you, you go through being inspired at Walter Reed really it sounds mm -hmm. like and realizing like hey like this is really it's not a limitation it's still life and you can do all these things but you also realize and it's kind of fascinating this arc that we're building here Amanda that we talked about before too but uh, I mean I think you know for the audience listening at home that's even able-bodied eating healthy you know not eating Snickers I mean, you can splurge, right? There's times, and I shouldn't say splurge, there's times where you can have those things in a normal setting, but I also feel like, hey, if you go home every day and you have Snickers, or like if your three o'clock snack is a Snickers, there's a problem there, right? Like, And so eating right and how that affects how you feel is so important. Not just being disabled at the time but also able-bodied though right i mean so it's kind of fascinating how like that arc of you know how you like you know some of the things that we talk about and we're going to talk about this here in a little bit is about like disease and prevention and some of the things that people can do um it's just fascinating to me to, to bring that bridge over to that well one of the reasons I realized that was actually through a documentary that I saw on like TLC or something that was sort of like my 600 pound life. Hmm. Um, it was just highlighting different people who were morbidly obese and their stories. And I was watching it. And first of all, I felt connected to the fact that they were bedridden. I felt connected to the fact that they were lost and sad, but in their backstories, there was nothing like they were in an accident. It was just like something happened and they just spiraled out of control. It could be like a breakup or, you know, somebody was abused, whatever it is. Some sort of trauma. Some type of trauma um, that was more emotional trauma. So these are perfectly able-bodied people who are now, they can't even fit into a motorized chair. They can't even, if God forbid... They need to go to the hospital. You need to take out part of the house to get them out. So I thought, wow, if that's doing, if this food is doing that to them a long term, to an able-bodied person, what is it doing to me? How is my body is severely injured and I am giving it nothing? It's, I'm li literally poisoning myself. So that was a big wake-up call for me. And one of the things that I forgot to mention, inspiration is fleeting, is what I'll always tell people. So it's sort of like bathing. 
you know, they say you have to do it every day. Well, that's how I feel about inspiration. It's really great if somebody inspires you, but that's not, the image of somebody is not going to get your shoes tied to get you out to go to the gym. You need to learn how to inspire yourself. And if somebody else's example puts that fuel to your fire inside of you to make you want to be your best self, then it's amazing. But simply being inspired by somebody, that's like step one. I think the point of being motivated or inspired by somebody is what I always say. If this woman, Susan, came up to me the other day at the store and she was saying how inspirational I am and how she saw me, you know, hopping through the aisles and that brought tears to her eyes and that she wishes she had the motivation that I had to do all this shopping. And I said, well, first of all, she does. You are shopping. (laughs) (laughs) But... I understand what you're saying, but you think that I am great in any way. It's because I'm showing a mirror of what's already inside of you. It's there. If you feel connected to it, it's for a reason. And I I think that the reason why we have role models in our lives and statues isn't because we want to say this person was exceptional. It's because we want you to see what they're doing and find the same fight and the same strength within yourself to fight whatever obstacles and adversities in your path. So I realized that night um, that I needed, like I was saying before, to save myself. I needed to become the hero that I was laying in bed waiting for. So I thought, all right, one of the things that I can do is I need something that I can actually see in my room to remind me of what's great and remind me of what I can look forward to. So I ended up getting this huge poster board um, and I had a whole bunch of post-it notes that were all different colors, which I was very excited about. And I got all these different colored pens. (laughs) It was very emotional. Um, I don't know how many days after this one night it was, but I wrote out on each post-it something that I still could look forward to in my life, despite my situation. So, actually, hold on one second. I have it so I can show it to you while like we're talking. Board. It's like a vision board. Except I wasn't cutting out images of images, magazines. but you were doing... I call this my hope board. H-O-P-E. And I'm showing everybody my hope board. Showing the microphone. Mm-hmm. So, as you can see, um, one of them says, hope for the best. Take my puppy around the block. Chat with Oprah. Live on my own again someday. Oh my gosh. This is my first time I'm living by myself since I got injured. So there's two things on here. There's actually three. (laughs) So say adios to my wheelchair. You're not Mm -hmm. using a wheelchair anymore. And then there's one here, which I'm gonna, I'm laughing, but <laughs> some of them are really cheesy. No, but these are this is amazing. Um, there's there's a couple here. So thank Team Hoyt in person after a race, which uh-huh. we're gonna circle back. I've met okay. Rick and Dick, and um, Rick is not actually running the Boston Marathon on Monday because he's sick. But great, great people. But you have one here even before that, which is crutch, walk, wheel, or jog a 5K and get a medal. So. Fast forward, like you end up learning how to walk again. Mm -hmm. And then how do you get involved? Like what was your first race? Because you've been hugely successful in Spartan. 
and I mean, I wouldn't say that, but I do them. Okay, well, most oh, people don't do them. <laughs> uh, you've become kind of a fixture on the Spartan yeah. scene for a while in the last two New York City marathons with Project Purple, which we're going to dive in in a, mm-hmm. a second here once we take a break. But what got you into running? Was it the, inspira- the, the note on the inspiration board? The note, well, the reason why this hope board, I recommend it to anybody, not just people who are going through some type of injury recovery. This was amazing for me because it's so easy to glorify our past. And when I would think back to my past, all I would do is think about how every day was so great because I, I never even, I don't even know how it feels to pop out of bed and just rush to brush my teeth and get everything ready just because I didn't ever appreciated the fact that I did it in the past. <laughs> I, I, I don't even know what it feels like to walk unaided because like I said, I never thought about it. It just was. Almost like we take those things for granted. It was completely taken for granted. It's like breathing. And then all of a sudden you end up with a sinus infection and you're like, oh my God, what I would do to be able to breathe again. <laughs> just get out of bed. Do your hair, go to the bathroom, brush your teeth, and then go. I have no idea how it feels. I never appreciated it. I never thought about it before. So this being, I put it on the other side of my room so that when I would wake up and go to sleep, I would look at it from across the room and I knew what it said. Hmm. And I knew all I have to do is get from here to there. And in between is just a whole bunch of stuff. But I can see over there there are so many things i can still do turn my wounds into when turn my wounds into when <laughs> can i say it turn, turn my wounds, wounds into wisdom <laughs> and right next to it you have don't ever give up lessons learned every single day and, and i think learn to jog in high heels which is great <laughs> but then you have some here that we've already talked about and not in this area this way but finally leave my lawsuits behind me which is like closure uh-huh. that talked about and don't oh here's one walk or wheel around the block one eighth of a mile wow so doing the hope board the hope board was amazing shoot. something that i learned to do on my own as well um it's something that i would do in my travels controlling my breathing so i would imagine that the core of my body was a capsule and that's my soul so I breathe in all the goodness from the world and the universe, everything that I needed, goodness, strength, light, I would breathe it in. I realized that negativity and darkness um, and adversity was like static cling to my soul. So when I would breathe out, I would strip off part of the darkness that was stuck static cling to my soul. And I would breathe in goodness and breathe out the negativity. So by doing that again, I had forgotten about it. And so I was laying in bed, that breathing exercise alone would help me that when I went to sleep, I would actually have good dreams instead of sad dreams. So I finally realized that I could put weight on my left leg just a little bit. So my friends down at Walter Reed were telling me that I needed to try to take steps on a treadmill. And so we came up with this way where I was waking all these braces and the, um, guys at the gym would like hold me a certain way. And if I held my hands onto the sidebars, the treadmill is on the absolute, they would rig it. So it was the absolute slowest possibly move. Mm. And if I took a step with my left leg 
and then use my arms just like when I was hit. It was very healing for me to do this motion. I would pick myself up on the sidebars and then throw my body to the right so my right leg would plop down on the ground, which didn't work. And then I would take a step with my left. I'm like, oh my gosh, I just took steps. As soon as I took steps, I was like, marathons, baby. <laughs> so I would be there for hours, stepping, stepping, stepping. And each step I would take, I would imagine like the treadmill as it's moving. It was just like all the negativity from my past, everything that I didn't like through. was just literally moving like the treadmill. Um, what's that? Called. Well, it's going, it's moving. Like the mat, whatever the ground part yeah. of the treadmill is called. <laughs> that thing. As it's moving backwards, everything else is just, just backwards. So, and like I was saying, when my breathing exercise, how the static cling was like black static cling onto my soul, all that darkness, it's just the bottom exciting. of the treadmill is the same, the same color. So as I was stepping, it was just like I was stripping all that stuff off my past. And each step I took, was one step stronger than I was before. So I was literally becoming better with each step. Well, obviously, once I realized I could do that, my friends down at Walter Reed would challenge me and say like, hey Sullivan, I don't even have any limbs. I walked four miles today, what you got for me? Oh man. <laughs> and I'm sure the competitive juices then. They knew exactly what to say to me to get me going. From your youth of being in athletics and being involved in sports, then I'm sure that just like. Oh my God. Right I legitimately was Rocky in Rocky Four getting ready to take Ivan Drago. Except I had the advantage of being on the treadmill like Ivan Drago. So I was like, <laughs> it's going down. So <laughs> I just got more and more pumped up each time. And my mom, continually, my mom would go to the gym with me. Obviously, she would drive me in there. Yeah. She would go, and she's on the treadmill next to me, pumping me up. We'd talk about everything. Um, my mom was like my hype girl. And she was amazing, too, just even getting me into my wheelchair and pushing me through the malls and finding different clothes um, that I could wear. So she was along with my friends at Walter Reed, that was like the perfect combination for me to get me going. My friends decided that if I could put weight on my leg at all, more importantly, if my arms got stronger, I could legitimately use forearm crutches. For those listening who don't know what forearm crutches are, the kind of crutches, some people call them canes, that have like a little crutch cuff around, right around your elbow, and then the it, sort of like a cane with crutch cuffs. So um, they sent me a pair. I did not want them at all. I kept saying I did not want them because for me, I imagined the only people I'd ever seen with crutches like that were people who were permanently disabled, sort of hunchback of Notre Daming, walking through like Grand Central Station or Penn Station. Um, I did not want to look like that. So I kept saying no. And my friends said, oh, that's cool. So you'd rather use a wheelchair. <laughs> than have the ability to walk. You have the ability. What were you saying about being grateful for mobility aids? Yeah. So uh, next thing I know, I have a pair of forearm crutches and I'm basically being told this is now um, August, September, 2012. I'm being told that I am doing a 5K. Uh, I believe it was just a few days away <laughs> in New York City. Oh, don't worry, there's going to be 30,000 able-bodied runners, and it's just going to be us as crippled. Yeah. I'm like, oh my god. So I said, and I was thinking, all right, 
I'm excited to use my wheelchair because I'm so good at my wheelchair and I was pumped to be able to try to go up the and hill. And you're going to use crutches. Yeah, they're like, ah, you're <laughs> using your crutches. <laughs> but then they told me the race was called the Tunnel to Towers race. And I knew Steven all Schiller. about, yeah, all about Steven Siller, who is a firefighter. You guys should look up www.tunnel2towers.org. Steven Siller was a firefighter on 9-11 who ran a 5K, 5K to get to World Trade. Yeah. With 60 plus pounds of bunker gear on him, 5K uphill from the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel to the World Trade Center. So you're literally following his footsteps. It's the only time all year they block off that tunnel. So I realized, okay, this seems like full circle for me because I always was sad when I was outside the country that I was missing this race. It's always the last Sunday in September. So... When I went to, I was very nervous to um, do a race. Honestly, if they hadn't pushed me to do this race, I would have never done it because I was imagining the way when I was in public and everybody would look at me, I had been called a crippled bee before. People were not very nice. <laughs> and society is not access- accessible. So I was afraid doing something like a race, you have all these people who are super in shape look like CrossFit models, I don't think I want to go there and make a fool of myself. So the fact that they were pushing me and they're like, we're all going to do it together. So we went and um, I got separated from the group. We started off the race together way ahead of all the other runners. Somehow we got separated, which means I am by myself. And all of a sudden, it's like Calvary. I could hear just footsteps echoing. I'm in the tunnel. Okay, well, 30,000 people pass me. And then I'm in the tunnel by myself. (laughs) That was the longest in that tunnel. I swear to God, I was in there for 17 years. (laughs) Just to never get out of it. Like, I've driven through this so many times, and it felt like a blink of an eye, and I'm out of here. Like, did something happen? It's like, I'm never going to get out of here. I started imagining. The only thing that made me feel better was that I thought that my friend, Adam Keyes, who's a triple amputee, you guys should look him up. He just climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. He is just a badass. So I thought Adam was behind me. So you're like, I'm going to beat Adam. Yeah, I thought I was going to beat Adam. And every time I would stop to stretch and take a break, I felt like I heard which would be him on his prosthetics. So I was like, I gotta go. And I kept thinking, I cannot even imagine being the last runner in this race. I feel so bad for him. Like, oh, that is just embarrassing. (laughs) So I kept going. And I started fantasizing about me breaking through the ribbon when I finished and all these firefighters picking me up and being like, Sullivan, Sullivan. I was like, oh, it's going to be so epic. Well, I come out of the tunnel, finally, and they figured out. (laughs) I asked cheerleaders for directions. The whole race is over. I could hear the after party in the distance. Bad mistake at asking cheerleaders for a... um, for directions, P.S. Um, they directed me the wrong way, and I already don't have a sense of direction. If I think we should go right, don't even look it up. Just go left. <laughs> so the Siller family actually um, think that I did an extra mile. So you did a four mile that day, and so uh, well, yeah, you could say. And then I've I <laughs> I was so misdirected. I came at the finish line at reverse. <laughs> 
So he came from behind. So I go all the way back around, and I was like, oh, oh my gosh. God. Anyways, uh, they were actually taking apart the finish line. They were taking everything apart. <laughs> so that took me, apparently, almost eight hours. <laughs> and uh, nobody was putting me on their shoulders. There was no super handsome firefighter like asking for my hand in marriage at the end of that. So when I finally got to the after party, the first person I see is Adam. Ugh. I'm like, what are you doing here? You are supposed to be in the tunnel. He's like, what are you talking about? What are you doing here? All these rumors we heard you were in the hospital. <laughs> we heard you died in the tunnel. I'm like, first of all, he had like five hot dogs and like eight beers in. How long have you been here for? So, um, so yeah, but I will say this, that when I crossed that finish line, thank God, they left a little patch of it for me to cross. Cross through. <laughs> I felt like I won an Olympic gold medal. That day for me, I realized I was so proud of myself. The fact that I kept going, yeah. there is absolutely no reason. Well, I had to keep going because I was trapped in that tunnel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But... I realized that day that I'm not going to stop when I'm tired or in pain or have a long way left to go. I'm going to stop when I'm done. So I realized, wow, uh, I never even thought about the the person who finishes a, a race last ever. I never, I would just do a race and I don't know, be in the front part of it and then finish. Well, now this fascinating. Because this is that arc again, right? Like, talk about appreciation and, like, how in that, like, you never realize that. No, yeah, and then never. You realize it, right? Like, how special that is and how appreciative it is. Yeah. And I had a very similar feeling. For me, when I ran the Boston Marathon, um, the first time I ran, I was, like, given a number the week before. And I was all the way in the back. And I was with all the disabled, blind, um, anyone Achilles. with a disability. Yeah, all the Achilles runners. Um, well, most of the Achilles runners would go out earlier, but just more the a lot of people that were heavy, uh -huh. um, charity runners, pretty much, in that last wave. And it's just so fascinating that I just experienced an appreciation for what, not necessarily running, but what that accomplishment meant and what that means to people. And it's so euphoric. It's, I mean, it's really, in, it, I would say, inspiring. I know we talked about inspiration and how that could be fleeting before, but it was just very empowering, I think is probably the best term, mm -hmm. and how powerful that feeling can be. So that was the first one. Oh, and now man, we that literally, like I said about having a little bit of light in my soul, yeah. I realized during those 15 years in the tunnel, <laughs> that um you felt alive I how do i put this i realized that that torch of my soul not only had been relit but it was burning it was burning so bright and i realized wow i have so much control i this light was never snuffed it was always there which is why i cried when i was writing my letter my suicide letter i cried because i still felt that fire yeah the, me crying was representative of the fact that that light was still inside of me and I didn't even know it was still there. And truthfully, when I was walking through the tunnel, like I was talking about on the treadmill with my steps, I felt like each time I, I pushed a little further, I felt like a little bit of that pain that I was talking about with traumatic brain injuries, how you have that tsunami of all these memories in the corner of your soul and your brain. I, I felt like I was 
smushing each one of those things. And I realized, I saw the light at the end of the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel and it felt like a closed chapter for me of the past, of the fact that I'd been bedridden and depressed and waiting for somebody else to save me. I saved myself that day and I realized I've always loved these stories of people shining in the face of adversity and I have the opportunity to do that for myself. If I love watching videos of people overcoming tremendous odds, what would it be like to actually be that person? So I started realizing this is actually a gift. Like This is so motivating. This is incredible and I have the power. All I have to do is keep that light relit. All I have to do is not only keep my own light relit, but try to help other people whose lights have been snuffed as well because the same way that they say that it takes one candle to curse the darkness, just one. All the darkness in the universe can be cursed by just one flicker of light. But when you have one candle and you, let's say I'm holding a candle that's lit and your candle is not lit. If I lean in and touch my flame to your flame, I am losing absolutely nothing of my light. So once you realize that a candle loses nothing of its light by lighting another candle, why are we not helping each other? And like you said about that inspiration, the reason why people feel inspiration is because it's like a little flicker of that light is touching their soul. So with that, we will continue on with Amanda's journey in episode two of the Amanda Sullivan podcast with Project Purple next week. (laughs) 